Again, so we're on week two of our, of our series entitled Living and Loving Like Jesus in the Post-Christian World as we go through Ephesians. And today, or last week, we looked at kind of the background situation as we open it up. But today we're going to be looking specifically at uh, zeroing in on this idea of adoption, that in Christ we are adopted. And so uh, I was looking for, for some adoption stories, and, and I found this one. was a little bit different. This is a real online ad from an animal adoption agency. And it says, okay, I've tried. You can throw the photo up there of this dog. I've tried for la- the last several months to post this dog for adoption and make him sound well palatable. The problem is, he's just not. There's not a very big market for neurotic, man-hating, animal-hating, children-hating dogs that look like gremlins. But I have to believe that there's someone out there for Prancer because I'm tired and it is so is my family. Every day we live in the grips of this demonic Chihuahua hellscape he has created in our home. He's literally the Chihuahua mame that describes him as being 50% hate and 50% tremble. The first week after adopting him, he was too terrified to have a personality. As awful as it sounds, it was kind of better that way. He was quiet and just laid on the couch. He didn't bother anyone. I was excited to see him come out of his shell and become a real dog. But now I'm convinced at this point he is not a real dog, but more like a vessel for a traumatized Victorian child that now haunts our home. Prancer only likes women, nothing else. He hates men. If you have a husband, don't bother applying unless you also hate your husband. Um, Have other dogs, cats? Don't apply unless they like being shaken up like a rag doll by a 13-pound rage machine. We also mentioned no kids for Prancer. I think at this point you can imagine why. He's never been in the presence of a child, but I can already imagine the demonic noises and shaking fury that would erupt from his body if he was. So if you've always wanted your own haunted Victorian child in the body of a small dog that hates men and children, please email me. Oh, and he's only two years old and will probably live to be 21 through pure spite. So take that into account if you're interested. All right, anyone attempted to adopt? Um, not the greatest adoption story, but the best one I could find. Uh, but now we'll be looking at a far better adoption story here in a minute, but just want to start with some levity. So, but last week we, we saw the big picture as we're lo- going through the book of Ephesians that, of what Paul is describing in this book and what's happening in the background of it. And we laid kind of the groundwork. And in summary, the book, the book of Ephesians is, is being written to one of the most anti-God societies in history, as we saw where everyone in the church has only been following Jesus for a matter of just a few years or even less. And so it's a very young church and almost everyone in the church has been deeply involved in demonic activity and witchcraft and magic and, and sexual ritual prostitution and so much other stuff. It's just, and then that's amongst the Gentiles and the Jews and the Gentiles are in incredible disunity between one another. And, and now Paul is going to start in the first half of this letter for the first few chapters, and he's going to explain what it means that they are now in Christ, that they have this new identity, that God's setting up this new society. That's the first three chapters. And, and the second half of the book is going to be all about now how do we live out that new identity. And so today, again, the focus of where I want to land as we jump into this passage is we're looking specifically at adoption, but there's so much here to look at. So let's, let's jump into verse 1 and 2, and it says this. This is how he opens the book. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise for the spiritual blessings in Christ. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here right in the opening. One of the things I love is what he says here to them, as he says, grace, or sorry, um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So notice the will of God part there. That's going to be a constant theme in this letter, that things are being done by God's will and God's choosing. But he says, to God's holy people. Another translated word there is the word saints. He calls the Ephesians saints. 
And that's interesting when you consider in this book, he's going to be addressing sexual morality, demonic activity, being involved with witchcraft and magic, just like in the book of Corinthians where he's dealing with so much crazy stuff, and he opens by calling them saints as well. And that's important as we get into here that for Paul, the people of Ephesus, the, ch- the church in Ephesus, he calls them saints. A lot of people are making uncomfortable that world of being called holy and blameless in that regard, but that is their reality, and we're going to come back to this as we continue in. But just a, how would you feel if Paul came in and, and he dressed you as a saint? Saint Bob or Saint Mary or Saint Susan? I mean, it's, w- w- would you feel a little uncomfortable being called a saint and holy by the Apostle Paul? If so, it means you don't understand the gospel. It means you don't understand what's written in the rest of this letter. So we're going to get there just now. Starting in verse 3, he says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chosen us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to the one, us in the one he loves. So now this begins one of the most amazing stretches in Scripture. It's actually the longest verse found or sentence found in the Bible. In fact, one of the longest found anywhere in ancient literature in the Greek language. This is a, a, a statement that goes all the way from verse 3 through through verse 14 is actually one sentence with no punctuation, one continuous sentence. It's a doxology or it's a, it's a hymn that is being written as just as in praise to God. It's incredible as we get into it. And today we're just going to deal with a few verses of it, but the whole thing is one giant hymn, one of the, the biggest mouthfuls of a hymn you could ever imagine singing. If we were to sing this in worship, it would almost seem awkward because every word kind of has to be unpacked. But it's just amazing what is happening in this hymn as we jump into it. Uh, so let's start in verse 3. I'm going to briefly hit 3 and 4 and 5, and the, or 3 and 4, and then we're going to get into 5, which is the, the, the crux of what I want to hit this morning. But starting in verse 3, he says this, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now there's a lot just in that verse to unpack. So again, he begins this hymn of praise by thanking God, and he says that God has blessed Christians in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So three loaded terms there, heavenly realms, spiritual blessings, and in Christ. So I want to unpack each of those just a little bit. So he says that God has already given the Ephesian church, given the Christians, every spiritual blessing. So what is a spiritual blessing then? If, if you're asked most people today, what is a spiritual blessing? They, they see spiritual as kind of being you know, this idea of things that are, are not earthly. So people would say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And so to think of a spiritual blessing, they may think maybe these things that just aren't tangible. Maybe it's just things having to do with, with things that make you feel better or give you greater joy or contentment. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. He's saying something very specific of when he talks about this word spiritual, which we get to here. And before I do, I just want to say that we could just gloss over this and just jump right to the passage, but... And what Paul is saying here to me, there's so much depth, and I want to jump a little bit into the weeds of, of these next few verses to get into understanding, to unpacking some of the stuff. If you don't like theology, I understand, bear with us. I think there's value here to be able to get in and actually understand what Paul is trying to say. Because if we understand the significance of this heavenly reality and being in Christ, it will open up our understanding of what Christ has done for us and who we are as Christians. So bear with me as we get just a little bit into the weeds and we just dig in a little bit. My background is as a Bible teacher, so I'm going to try to not be too nerdy, um, but uh, we'll try and, and keep it engaging. But 
He says that we have every spiritual blessing that's already been given to us. And and this doesn't mean that we have whatever we want, but it's very specific of what the Holy Spirit has given. And so uh, I want to quote from a a commentary by Dr. Klein Snodgrass. It's the NIV application commentary, one of my favorite ones. Uh, and, And here's what he has to say about this. He says, every spiritual blessing has been granted to us in Christ. Spiritual does not mean these gifts are otherworldly, nor does it suggest that the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians. Rather, the expression refers to all that God's Spirit brings to enable life. This letter will unfold all of these blessings, but the immediate context mentions election, adoption, grace, forgiveness, revelation, the gospel, and the Holy Spirit. As verse 13 and 14 will show, the Spirit is the primary gift and the source of all the others. So we have these blessings that aren't spiritual, but they're blessings of the Spirit, right? To say spiritual, you can always just replace that. There's no spiritual understanding back then. It's blessings that come from the Holy Spirit. So these, and these blessings, again, are listed right after it, and it's a lot more than this, but it's not just talking about the fruits of the Spirit. This is the blessings He's given us are far better than anything else. It's of this other plane as we're going to talk about. It's the blessings of election. We'll talk a lot more about that. Blessings of adoption, blessings of grace and forgiveness and redemption, and even the Holy Spirit Himself, these are the blessings that we have received. <coughs> and it's not something we need to get more of. It says every spiritual blessing that you can desire has already been given to you. So there's nothing more to run after. And then where are these blessings located? Look at what it says. They are located in the heavenly places or the heavenly realms. Paul uses this term, heavenly places, five times in the letter of Ephesians. And for them, for the Ephesians, real power is not found here on earth. Remember last week, looking at the background of this book, real power is not even physical. Real power is the spiritual power, is the power that the Ephesians were after. Well, power over the demonic, power over with where Artemis has power, where all the demonic witchcraft has power. That's where they want power, because they recognize that's where the real power is. And so Paul is making the central point here in this letter, right here, and he's going to come back to it again and again, that there are, in fact, two realities, two very, very real realities. There's a physical reality, and that's the physical world, and there's a heavenly reality, or a spiritual reality, what he calls the heavenly places here. And the physical world, what what, what we can see and taste and touch and smell and and grab with our own hands, right? Everyone understands that, and the Ephesians understood that. But that is not the only reality that makes it abundantly clear in this letter. There's also this heavenly reality. And this heavenly reality, again, the Ephesians knew that even more. And today we often gloss over this as though it doesn't matter. But if we don't take time to acknowledge the reality of what he's speaking about here, we will misunderstand a great deal of Paul's writings as well as much of what Jesus said. So without this understanding, a lot of this book isn't going to make sense. So we have these two realities, the physical reality, and then mixed in with that, laid over, is this higher reality, this this heavenly reality, as we're going to talk more about. So again, Snodgrass puts it this way. He says, a larger reality exists where Christ is already exalted as Lord. That's in this heavenly reality. He's already exalted as Lord, where believers participate in his victory and where spiritual forces are opposed. Though believers, we live physically here on earth in this physical world, we receive spiritual resources and our identity from this higher place, from this other reality, from the heavenly reality. The spiritual blessings given to Christians are enjoyed in this present life, for they derive, they come from God and what God has done in Christ in the heavenly realm. Right? So these two are intermixed. If you're kind of confused, we're going to keep going here. But this is central to understanding what it means to be a Christian, is that we live in these two realities. And so as Christians, if we, it, we must embrace both of these. We must recognize we are here on earth, but we also have a spiritual reality that is just as real as the physical one. 
And as we see in the heavenly realms, we see that in the spiritual reality, we have victory in Christ. We are declared holy. We are declared blameless. We are seated in Christ. And although we may not always see it or feel it or, or, or can touch it or taste it based upon our surroundings and our circumstances, we're going to see that this is our reality nonetheless, even if we don't recognize it. And this is where our true identity as Christians comes from. Not from our parents, not from this world, but from what Christ says about it and what Christ has done. That is our true identity. And so Christ, again, to summarize this, he has blessed us in the heavenly reality with every blessing that comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying so far. Now in verse 3, he finishes in saying, every spiritual blessing in Christ. So I want to talk about this phrase, in Christ, for a minute. This is something that Paul hits over and over and over and over again. The phrase in Christ actually occurs over 164 times in in, in Paul's writings alone. And it's central to understanding our identity and definitely central to understanding anything that Paul is trying to say and Jesus. We are in Christ as Christians. And every blessing we receive, you're going to see in this letter, is in Christ. So whether that's redemption, or adoption, or election, or inheritance, or forgiveness, or being chosen, all of this happens in Christ. And it's not insignificant. So often we just read through that stuff and we say, sure, whatever. But no, it's worth jumping into the weeds and saying, why does that matter? Because it really, really matters. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, I mean, basically, just as it seems, it means we're in union with Christ. We are one. We, 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 we are in Christ. When we become Christians, we become one in Christ. If you think about a baptism, we share in his death, right? We die in baptism, and we come out of the water, and we share in his life. And the same way we share in his life, and we share in his inheritance, we share in his redemption. And this is central to why Christ even became human, was that he died, he identified with us, and he died with us, it says, and that we now live with him. We are in Christ. He didn't just do it on our behalf as he said, move out of the way, I got this, but we are in him. If that was the case, it wouldn't work, but we are raised with him. And there's a few times where in in scripture where in Christ will mean like through Christ or with Christ or because of something he did, there's a handful of those. But most every time it talks about this idea of being in, within, as part of Christ, in the heavenly or the spiritual reality. So in this reality, we are in Christ, we are part of his body, and we are in this, in this present reality right now. This is what the reality is, that we are in Christ at this moment, whether you feel it or not. Whether you feel Jesus there or not, this is true. It's a fact. In fact, this is the way Jesus says it in John 17, verse 21. We've gone through this passage a lot recently. He says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you, Father, he says, and now they is us, right? He's referring to the disciples to come. That's us. So I pray they, that's us, will all be one. He says, just as you, Father, are and I are one. He says, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, may they, now that's us today, may they be in us so that the world will know and believe that you sent me. Right? Jesus is saying it right there. Or later in this own book, in chapter 5, verse 30, he says, we are members of his body, referring to Jesus. The Ephesians, you are members of the body of Christ. You are one with him. You are part of his body. And then a chapter earlier in 425, he says, we are part of the same body. So we are one in Christ. Now we're going to talk a little bit in a second here about why that matters so much. So stick with me if you're starting to get bored of the theology of this. So we're going to see the significance of this reality because it really matters. Because Christ didn't just take our place in dying for us, but he joined us into himself. All right, so now on to verse 4. 
And he says, for he chose us in him, so in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, we're going to come back to this at some point, because there's just way too much to cover today in, in one message, but such an incredible truth. First, that Christ chose us. Do you get that? That Christ chose us. How did he choose us? We see it's in Christ. But when did he choose us? Once we proved that we were worthwhile, once we proved that we were faithful, and the answer you see there is no. He chose us before the foundations of the world, before creation existed. Before there was any earth, before there was any creation, Christ chose us, or God chose us through Christ, or in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Because he wanted us. He saw us from the beginning of time, in the past, eternity past, he saw us, desired us, wanted us, even knowing all of our failures. And what it tells us right from the beginning, that being chosen has nothing to do with our merit. Here's the big point Paul is making. Has nothing to do with our merit. Has nothing to do with what we have done. But he chose us from the very beginning, not based upon our efforts, but by the fact that he wanted us. And what did he choose us for here, it says? He chose us to be holy and blameless. Now that's amazing. He, from the beginning of the foundations of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless. Now, holy and blameless, without fault, without sin. And, and that can sound really exhausting because, well, now maybe I have to try and live perfectly, otherwise I failed Jesus. And, and that's actually not what he's saying here. You know, it, he's not saying here that we have to try and focus our entire life to be perfect and be sinless and be blameless. That's, that's an exhausting, un- impossible task. It's been said before that no one can be sinless this side of eternity. But as we do walk out sanctification, as we walk out living and loving like Jesus, we will begin to sin less and less and less and less. But we will never be sinless on our own this side of eternity in this present reality because we cannot as fallen creatures. But yet he says he chose us to be holy and blameless. So what does he mean? And, and that's just so beautiful because he says, again, it's... it's, it's that now that Jesus saves us, Paul says, he says now he has claimed and declared us perfectly holy and blameless. And it's not that we have to do this on our own, as he says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. He says this this way. Yet now he has reconciled you. And, and, and you could say y'all because it's a plural you. Sadly, our English translations don't show that. So it's not you individually, it's all of you. So yet now Christ has reconciled you, or so God has reconciled you all to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought y'all into his presence, and you all are holy and blameless as you all stand before him without a single fault. Do you get what that's saying? That's not when you're perfect. It's saying when we are adopted, when we are accepted by Christ, he declares us righteous, he declares us holy and blameless, and from the beginning of time, he knew we would be this pure, spotless lamb. When Christ dies for us, we receive his saving grace. We are declared righteous and holy and blameless in this heavenly reality that is as real as the current reality of this physical world. And he says he did all of this before the foundation of the earth. He chose us and to make us holy. But why? And that's where we're going to jump into the next, the, next, the next verse. And he can do this because we are in Christ. And again, being in Christ is so incredibly important to understand this phrase. And all that for most of my Christian life, I just read right past that phrase as though it didn't matter. It wasn't until doing masters and going farther into it that I realized, oh my goodness, this is so transformative in Paul's writings. Before it would just be, oh, just because of Jesus. No, it's not because of Jesus. We are in Christ. And there are a handful of references in Scripture where it says Jesus dwells within us, right? Jesus dwells in our heart, and that's, that's true, but there's literally just a handful of them. 
but there are 164 times where it uses the phrase that we are in Christ. It is a far bigger metaphor and example of this. And why does it matter? Because when we focus on Christ being in us, again, Snodgrass says it this way, we define reality in that case. When the focus is on us, or Christ living in us, we're the ones defining reality. He's in us. And Jesus is, is kind of like one inch tall living here in my heart. right? And so therefore, I'm the charge. I take him with me everywhere I go. I lead the way. But if we realize that we are in Christ, it totally changes it. Instead, Jesus determines our reality. And Jesus encompasses all of who we are, rather than us being the ones who lead the way. When we are in Christ, Jesus is the one who determines our reality, if we live out of that truth. Christ should be the one determining our reality. His reality is far more real than anything that we can understand, anything that we can taste, anything that we can see, anything that we can touch. Jesus' reality is far more real than any of that. Our eyes deceive us all the time. Our hearts and our minds deceive us. We think we see clearly, but often we're just living in a fog and we misinterpret. Jesus is the one who created reality. And so therefore, I would much rather follow his lead than try to lead him. I would much rather listen to his truth than try to lean into my own understanding. I mean, I'd much rather try to pursue what he says is real than just following my own fruitless efforts to do so. And so the question then is, which reality do you live out of more often? <clears throat> the reality that Jesus has created and the reality that is truly real, the one that God defines, or the one that you define? The one where he is Lord or the one where you are Lord? Right? If Christ truly is, if he made us to be in Christ, it means he must define it. And if we're honest, usually we live out of the world that we define where God is not in control, and I am on the throne, and I am Lord of my life rather than him. And we see the fruit of it all the time. But he's saying that we are in Christ, and in Christ, he has made us blameless. He has chosen us before the, end, before the beginning of the world. He has given us every possible spiritual blessing or blessing of the Spirit and the heavenly realities we could ever imagine. And this is literally just the first couple of verses of this hymn. An incredible doxology. That's, our worship songs today don't quite live up to it. But I want to get into verse 5. He says this, In love He predestined us for adoption for sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Now, so what does that say? It says, In love He predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of His will. So now, again, in love. So all of this is out of love for us. He predestined us, which again is just a fancy way of saying He decided way in advance for us. Before the creation of the world, He decided way in advance. And so what did He decide in advance for us to do? that he would adopt us to be full sons or daughters through Jesus. Now, that's an incredible idea what he gets here. The biblical language here is going to use the word sonship because that's how it was understood, at the, the legal way it was understood at the time. In fact, the Greek word for, uh, for adoption literally means to make someone a son. So there's no other way to translate it. But it is not just limited to one gender, just like saying the bride of Christ doesn't mean we're all female. It's, it's not gender specific in that regard. But for Romans, I mean, Esther was already talking about the idea of adoption was a very, very significant thing and something that was done specifically by the wealthy who didn't have an heir. Jews didn't even practice adoption. It wasn't a common practice because the Torah had all the kind of the rules and regulations they would follow. But for wealthy Romans, if they had no male heir, they would need someone who could adopt their property. <clears throat> and so they would make someone a full heir. They would adopt somebody that would become and inherit all of their wealth. 
But adoption in a Roman context was very different than it is today. It was very much a, a, an event. It was actually a huge celebration or, or, or process when it was done. But when you adopt someone into your home, all of your debts are immediately canceled. Right, when you adopt someone, because you literally are given a new identity. So all de- debts, the whole identity of whoever you were before is gone. It's over. You become part of the new family in that regard. You're given not just the name, but you get all the inheritance. And it's even better than actually being a natural-born son, because Rome was crazy. As natural-born children, a father had complete authority over the kids' lives. There's multiple examples in Roman history where a father can put their own kids to death without cause. They could just give their own reason for it. But a, and you could disown children as part of Roman courts. You cannot disown or put to death an adopted kid. They become yours forever. And when you adopt them, they receive everything that is yours. Everything. So people who are wealthy would adopt people who they trusted to come in to pass on their heirship. And the most common, the most popular one of this, the most famous one, was done by uh, Caesar. Was, was Julius Caesar did this. Right back just at the turn of the century, and he adopted a guy named Octavius, who we would later know as Augustus Caesar, became the first emperor of the Roman, of the Roman emperor, a Roman empire. So adoption was very, very significant. And the core points of this, when you're adopted, you get an entirely new identity. All your debts of the past are canceled. You are no longer who you are. You are now under this person, and you receive every right of being a full son and receiving all the inheritance, the blessing of that person. This is the example that Paul is using here of adoption. It's not by accident. It's incredible language. And so not only do they become children by being adopted, but they receive everything that belongs to the father. All previous debts are canceled, and they get a totally new identity in the process. This is adoption. And so Paul uses this example in Romans chapter 8, 15, where he puts it this way. Paul says of this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you receive the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we are no longer slaves, as the song goes that we sang, who live in fear. But we are adopted as sons and daughters. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba is just, it was the most common Aramaic form that a child would use to address their father, like Daddy or something like that. But now we can call out to him because we are his children. We are no longer slaves who have to live in fear. We're going to talk about that in a second. And the Holy Spirit confirms that this is who we are. Or Galatians 4, 6, he puts it this way. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. And in my opinion, and the opinion of countless other scholars, adoption is the most amazing thing that God does. It's greater than every other theory, every other doctrine, every other thing out there, because there are so many spiritual blessings that God gives. We've already seen there's redemption and forgiveness and being chosen, but nothing compares to adoption. I love the way that Tim Keller puts this. And he, you know, he says, justification is awesome, forgiveness is awesome, but he gives this illustration. He says, it's one thing for a governor to pardon a criminal and say, you don't have to be executed. That, that's forgiveness. That's awesome. It's another thing for the governor to give that criminal a medal and a a great job in his administration. That'd be grace, giving him what he doesn't deserve, this wonderful gift. He says it would be far greater for the governor to adopt this man into his family, give him his own name. The governor then makes him an heir of all his wealth. The governor brings him into his table and brings him into his home. You see the difference there? That is radical beyond forgiveness and redemption. All the other stuff is being a child of the king of the father. 
And sometimes we can focus so much on, on Christianity being a set of rules or regulations, and we can focus on the doctrine of forgiveness of sin or trying to get into heaven, and we forget why God does all those things. The reason for that is to be part of his family. That's what God wanted, to be with us, to love us, and have us be his children. That is his longing and his desire. And sometimes we turn it into a stiff relation, a religion of some kind where it's just about obeying this or obeying that, and we instead forget the life-giving relationship that God has called us to. That we become the beloved, the dearly loved children of God whom God delights in. He puts it this way in John 1, uh, the, the Apostle John says this, he says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's who we are. We are children of God. And yet far more energy often goes into sin avoidance and all this other stuff instead of living out our calling to be Christ's kids, to love him and love one another. I love J.I. Packer. He puts it this way in his book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, listen to this, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. The central idea, God is our father and we are his kids. He wants relationship with us. He wants to pour his love out upon us. This is why he forgives us. This is why he redeems, so that we can be in fellowship with him. And all who believe are children of God. We were chosen before the creation of the world, and, and God declares us holy and righteous, and He gives us this new heavenly reality, and He gives us this true identity, much truer than anything we think about ourselves, and, and He calls out our identity over and over again, His longing for us from before the creation of the world to be with Him and to be His child. And yet today, I feel often in our culture, we just live in like this identity crisis. I think unlike any time in recent history, you know, somehow it's so weird today that gender and sexual preferences have become more of our identity than anything else in this current season, which is just insane. Or identity, sometimes we think, is based upon our parents and their view, or identity, sometimes we think, is on how you dress or, or, or who we're attracted to, or how emotionally healthy we are, how clean we think where our home is. But our identity is given to us by God. We were chosen before the foundations of the world to be, to, uh, by God to be his children. That is our identity. We are children of God. We are adopted in Christ. That is our reality. That is our identity. We are called to be holy and blameless, his beloved children who he delights in. God loves us and created us to be his kids. You know, in human adoption, there's often so many failures. Many of you are adopted, know those who are adopted, and parents regularly fail. And if you've adopted before, you would know you fail regularly. But when God is the Father, there is no failure. It is perfect and loving, and He does not forget. He does not leave us on our own. He is there for us and will not stop pursuing us. He chose us from before the foundations of the world, so we can promise and we can hold on to the promise that He won't bail on us just a few years before we die or just when we're in those final moments of life or in the midst of our struggles. He has been with us from the very beginning before the foundations of the world. And here's what's truly insane about this whole thing. God loves us just as much as he loves his son. And that's what's crazy in this whole thing. Not only are we loved by God, but we are loved as much as he loves Jesus. John 17, 23 says this, just after the verse we looked at before, Jesus says, Father, you love them, that's us, as much as you love me. Now, do we all really believe that? 
Does everyone else truly believe that God loves us just as much as he loves his son? My guess is we don't. I'm going to take a couple more points from Keller. Something he says is just beautiful. He says, imagine the welcome that the father gave to Jesus when he returned to heaven from dying on the cross. Imagine that welcome. After having been tortured and died, having accomplished this great worth, imagine how the father welcomed Jesus. Imagine how wide the Father's arms were. Imagine the power, the the tidal wave of love that must have just surged out towards Jesus when Jesus returns to the Father's arms. Imagine that. Imagine that much love. And why am I saying to imagine that? Because that is the love with which the Father loves us. If not, he's lying. That is the Father's love towards us. Whatever love He has towards the Son is the same amount of love He has towards us as His adopted children. Do you believe that? That is true. That is reality. It is more real than the chair you are sitting on and the air that you breathe. God loves us that much. Keller's got a great line where he says, I feel like a a wine bottle with a cork stuck in it when talking about the Father's love. Because like, I I want to express how amazing it is, but no amount of words can ever begin to describe how incredible it is. I can yell it, I can scream it a million times, and we can't begin to describe the depth and the wonder of his love for us. That's why Paul's going to say in a few more verses, I pray that your eyes will be open, the eyes of your heart will be open to understand how wide and deep and high and amazing is the love of Christ. Do we believe that? Most likely not. Because if we did believe that, during times of trial and pain, we'd be running to him rather than running to coping mechanisms. We'd run to him in times of difficulty rather than binging on Netflix or turning to to porn or lust or alcohol or or just busying ourselves in our work or running to just cleaning the house or something else. We'd run to him if we actually believed that. Because we keep living out of the false self. And so as, as we turn to application, the question I would have for all of us is, are we living as a slave or as a child of God? Which one are we living out of? You see, emotionally, slaves are all over the map. Why? Because they're performing all the time. And when they perform well, they're rewarded well, and they perform poorly, they're going to be reprimanded. And it makes sense because we want to try and win the approval of the master. But children are very different because children are secure and they're stable because they know that their acceptance isn't based upon how well they perform and they know that their father loves them. That's where it's based upon, not upon their performance. So they aren't afraid of rejection or if they fail because they know the father loves them. I'm going to quote Keller again here, but he says, if right now you're caught, you're caught in an anxiety cycle, if you're desperately afraid because you're not doing well, you're desperately anxious because you're not attracted to the opposite sex, or you're desperately upset because you're not doing well in your career, or you're hopeless, or you're in despair, or if you're self-conscious and you're destroyed by criticism, or you're judgmental and controlling, it's because the old family keeps coming along and trying to convince you that you are not part of the Father's house. You are not part of this new family. Everything that God did throughout all eternity was for this purpose, to bring us into His family, to adopt us back into His love. It's the pinnacle of everything that God did. It's the climax of every plan of God in history. The whole point of Jesus' death on the cross would be for us to be restored as His children and for Him to shower His love down upon us.
So are you living as a, as a slave or as a child of God? A slave lives in fear in that song we were just singing. But why are they in fear? They're in fear because they're scared of being rejected or punished or demoted in some way. Everything they do is fear-based of, is the master happy or not? But an adopted son or daughter is radically different. They don't have to live in fear because they have complete confidence in the love of the Father because they were chosen not because of how good or bad they were, but purely because the Father loved them and wanted them. They're not in the Father's good graces because of their goodness or their badness, but because of Jesus's. So it's not up to them. A slave thinks, you know, when I have done well, when I've performed well, I feel great about myself. But when I failed, I'm in despair or, or depressed. It's this roller coaster of emotions that slaves live in, always wondering how I'm doing. Has anyone ever experienced that roller coaster? Is God pleased with me? Is he pleased with me? What's going on this week? Whereas a child relates to the father in a different way. When you have a good week or perform well, you don't get puffed up and say, I'm awesome, because you know that your performance, no matter what it is, is not the reason that you're a child of God. It's because of Jesus. And if you fail, you don't go into deep depression because you know that your performance and what you did is not the basis of being a child of God. It's because of Jesus. So you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live into anxiety. A slave sees all hardship as punishment and they live in fear of punishment of any kind, whereas a child doesn't worry about the punishment or the hardships, the sufferings. Yes, they're difficult, but it doesn't cause them to doubt God. It doesn't cause them to doubt their circumstance, live in fear, because they know he's right there with them and he has for them is good. Adopted children don't have to live in fear, but they trust the Father's good intention in all things. A slave can be defensive so easily because they always have to look good. They can't take criticism. They're always judging and comparing themselves to others because they have to look better than other people. They always want to make sure they're doing enough. Adopted children of God don't have to worry about such things because they know that we're all there and we can rejoice with one another and celebrate. It's not to tear people down and gossip about other people. A slave feels they have to have their whole life together. Can't invite someone over unless the house is perfect. Can't approach the father unless their world is perfect. Don't even want to go to church if they've been in sin recently because they feel that everything's messed up. As a child of God, even if they've screwed up, they can come to God immediately. They can come to him covered in vomit from their own sins and their brokenness. And I, I love that because I see that in my life with my own boys. I have a five, a seven, a nine-year-old boy. And I love it. It's so beautiful that no matter what's happening, if I'm even in an important meeting, I mean, they'll just run right in to show me some new Lego creation, especially when I work at home in the office. They'll run in. I mean, Sarah says, you know, don't go in. And they don't care. They don't listen to that. They just open the door right in the middle of a Zoom call or something else. Look at this new thing I built, right? They got to tell me. Or, Dad, listen to this new joke I just said. It's so funny, right? They just don't care. They're there. And if they vomit all over themselves, which sadly happens far too often, I didn't realize as a parent how much vomit you would have to clean. But every time they vomit, you know what the first thing they do? They run to us. They don't go hide. They run to us because they know that we're the ones that will be able to fix it. And instead, we do the opposite. If we're slaves, we run away from God. And our, our children never fear interrupting us. Even if Sarah and I are having a deep conversation and, and she's like crying or something's happening, or we're talking about something serious. I mean, I can't count the number of times they're like, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And they're getting angry. What? What's going on? And they're like, did you know this about a penguin? Are you serious? Like, it just, I had to get that off my chest right then and there, right? But as children, they have that access. And they don't even notice what's going on, right? And that's beautiful, and it's lovely, and I hope it never changes. Do we live out of a slave mentality or sonship? We are in Christ. 
but so often we hold on to our brokenness and we let that define us rather than letting his reality define us. Whereas adopted children, if you're a Christian that's living as a slave mentality, come to God right now and just confess that to him. Just tell him where you're at and say, Lord, open my eyes to your truth. I'm tired, I'm exhausted of refusing you and pushing you away. Of trying to define reality for myself. Just pray to him this morning and say, but I know that I am in Christ. I want to accept this other reality as the true reality, Lord. Just as real as the chair that I'm sitting on. That every spiritual blessing is ours right here and right now. But we have to accept that truth of what Christ has done. We have to let it right over the track we've been recording for so many years and saying about ourselves and let his truth right over that track. That's an old reference, I guess, to cassette tapes or VHS, but I guess hard drives do the same thing. Right over that track. What are that line as we've been telling ourselves? Because it's true. And there may be some here today you know, who are not yet adopted, and that's a reality. I don't know where everyone in this room is at. And if you're in that place where, as I'm speaking, even, you're like, I don't know that kind of love. I'm tired of trying to rule my own life and be in control of everything. The love you speak of, that kind of love, is something I've never tasted, never known. I tell you, God wants to be your father. If you're online and watching this, God wants to be your father. He wants to pour his love out upon you and let you experience the beauty of that. And so today, just cry out to say, Lord, I'm tired of doing it on my own. I just want your love. I want to experience that, what you created us for. I'm tired of defining myself and and living as Lord of my own life, but come and be Lord of mine. Just pray that out to the Lord today. You know, there's no room for self-condemnation as children of God. Because we are his children, there's no room for self-pity. Because we are his children. There's no room for bitterness or arrogance or anger or lust or any degree of brokenness we fall into because we are his children and we can hold on to him and we can walk in his truth. So we're going to have communion now. And as we move towards communion um, as, as an act of worship, we're going to do it similar to what we did just a, a month ago. And we're not always going to do it this way. I just felt as we're just focusing in on what does it mean to love one another, I want us to again seek to love one another in the midst of communion. And so we're going to get into groups in just a second of four or five people. If, if this terrifies you, you can just politely uh, abstain. And in each group, if you just have one person or so that has a Bible or an app on their phone that can, that can be able to show the scriptures, you can pass it around. Just one person to each step. And I've added a fifth step for today. And it's an optional. Just be able to pray out in gratitude for what Christ has done. Or if you're sitting there and you're saying, this message is true, but I have not lived this out of my life. I'm living as a slave. You can honestly just say, hey guys, pray for me, or just pray out and say, I want this to be a change. And the worship team's going to come back up. When they come up, don't worry, you can just keep praying. And you just keep praying the whole time if you want to while they sing. Don't let it bother you if that's what you want, or you can join into worship. But we want to be able to join in. So Father, we just come to you now, we pray. Jesus, you created us to be with you, because your love for us is greater than we could ever comprehend. So Father, right now I ask that you would come and move in our hearts right now. There's any here, Lord, that even though they know you have been living in a false sense of identity of who they are, have rejected the truth of what you've done, or just not living out of that, Lord, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, come and speak your truth to their heart as we take your communion, Father. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember the sacrifice that you have made for us. May we realize that sacrifice wasn't just so you'd be glorified. It was so that we could be put back into relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus.